We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Dimitri Bures of the China Post. Hi, good evening, everyone. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith in Taichung. Oh, it's great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing the KMT inviting Taipei Mayor and Taiwan People's Party Chairman Kerwin Zhe to a policy forum which sparks speculation of a 2022 local election alliance, increasing concerns over new water restrictions due to the lack of rainfall, an invitation for Ma Ying-jeou to attend the 228 commemorative event in Taipei, leading to some controversy, indigenous languages being a focus on International Mother Language Day and the Ministry of Labour touting the narrowing of the gender pay gap in 2020. But we'll begin with some cross-strait talk that got all rather poetic following the swearing-in of newly appointed Mainland Affairs Council Minister Cho Tai-san. And speaking at his swearing-in ceremony this week, Cho said that he'll do his best to break the impasse with China without sacrificing Taiwan's sovereignty, but he offered no specifics on how he planned to achieve that. But he did go on to say that Beijing's continuous insistence on upholding the 1992 consensus and the One China Principle as the basis for official cross-strait exchanges is detrimental to relations. And according to Cho, the Chinese government should take a more practical approach in pushing for cross-strait interactions in order to enhance mutual trust and cease linking the consensus and the principle. And he went on to say that the two sides should share the blossoming of flowers in the warmth of spring. Now, the spokesperson for China's Taiwan Affairs Office opted to borrow the words of a Tang Dynasty poet named Li Bai in responding to Cho, saying that Taiwan would have to return to the 1992 consensus if it wishes to create the conditions of the east wind, rain and dew for cross-strait ties to blossom. The Chinese official also flatly rejected Cho's comments and he says that he intentionally conflated the consensus with the one China, two systems policy that China employs in Hong Kong and he intentionally twisted and distorted the facts. However, the Mainland Affairs Council dismissed the Chinese official's claims, saying the burden of easing the cross-strait impasse lies with Beijing and it should recognise that the antagonism and distrust it has created in Taiwan was caused by its negative action. So, Dimitri, a new head of the Mainland Affairs Council, hoping to, well, mend ties with China. Well, well do, are you asking me whether uh, do we expect any changes in cross-strait policies in the near future? Well, uh, if it's, this is the question, I think we already had the answer uh, yesterday. Uh, in a semi-presidential system like Taiwan, uh, all policies are eventually, I think, decided uh, by the pre- at the presidential office. So, for example, yesterday the National Immigration Agency said that it reject applications by a Hong Kong actor and film producer and his uh, adult son for for residence in Taiwan. So the Hong family applied last year for resident permit based on their relationship to Charles Hong's wife, who is Taiwanese. Well, we do understand that they have a different opinion about Taiwan and Hong Kong politics, but maybe some people in Taiwan do too. So we also understand understand that Taiwan authorities want to take a stand on the latest developments in Hong Kong, but, um, well, the filmmaker, uh, we also need, for example, to, well, at least we need to live up to, demo, to, demo, to, demo, to the democratic values in Taiwan and treat private citizens differently. So when it comes to cross-straits policies, well, I don't see any uh, changes on the short term. And uh, even we, even if with a new minister, uh, I don't think we we'll see major uh, changes this year. Well, thanks for your pessimism there, Dimitri. But Donovan, I mean, of course, 
There was talk of when Cho was given the job that maybe it could be China could look at him a bit more politely than the last chap. Uh, well, I, I, that's the image that the the Thai administration wants to give, um, because Cho Cho Tai San is is viewed widely as a dove on on China is sort of the the line that people have been touting. Uh, but what it, really, what I think this is more about is that Tsai is trying to look like she's the one who's trying to reach out, trying to uh, bring some sort of um, peace. But the fact of the matter is, is that right out of the gate, Chiu um, Tai-san, when he was asked about the 92 consensus, uh, as you noted in the introduction, he, he said that, you know, the one trying to that the Beijing's continuous insistence on upholding the 92 consensus and one China principle as a basis for official cross-strait exchanges is detrimental to China, to Taiwan-China relations and called on China's government to be more practical. And, of course, Ma Xiaoguang, the spokesman of the Taiwan Affairs Office in China, of course, as you noted again in the beginning, said that he was intentionally conflating the consensus with one country, two systems. Now, he should really take that up with his boss, Chairman Xi Jinping, who flat out came out and conflated the two. So he's the one who here is uh, twisting what actually happened. But you can see right out of the gate, they're basically coming out and is, is stating the existing lines, which neither side is going to bridge, particularly because on the Chinese side, they're, they're just simply not going to budge unless the Thai administration is going to accept the 92 consensus and, by extension, that Taiwan is part of China, nothing's really going to happen. Um, and now, you know, as far as the Cho saying, you know, the blossoming of flowers and the warmth of spring, I, the blooming of flowers, I don't know. I, every time I hear that, I think of a hundred flowers bloom, uh, which obviously went really well for the people who responded to that. Um, now, as for the Hong family from um, Hong Kong, I think it's worth noting that Jackie Hong, the son in the family, is affiliated with a Communist Party youth organization. So there are some legitimate national security concerns there. Uh, and it doesn't help that both the mother, the Taiwanese mother, and the father did come out. And while they did, well, it's true that they, you know, that there are different opinions on this in Taiwan, but they did come out very strongly on a very anti-democratic stance. And Taiwan has come out, you know, internationally as a defender of democracy, not just in Hong Kong, but in general. And so it would look hypocritical of them to back down on that in this situation. Well, yeah, that's true. But the the, the concern we have is, uh, are we going to uh, keep up with these uh, cross-test policies over the next uh, three years? And if uh, if we can't see any improvements on the short term, uh, that will also have maybe impact on maybe uh, business ties uh, across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, we do we do know that the Taiwan uh, Taiwan industry relies a lot on developments in mainland China. So, well, without proper improvements on the mid long term, what are what is the future for Taiwan industries? Well, that actually, um, the Chinese side has actually been uh, going out of their way to start increasing access to the Chinese market uh, from Taiwan rather than decrease it, uh, regardless of political tensions. They have a vested interest in bringing in more Taiwanese investment, more Taiwanese technology, and the more people that they can get 
both financially and physically tied to their financial system, the more leverage that they have. So regardless of political tensions between the Tsai administration and uh, Beijing, they have actually been going out of their way to increase access. Because one of the concerns that they have right now is, of course, the Tsai administration is pushing to go south, uh, the, you know, the new southbound policy. Uh, you can hear my age in that one. Um, and a lot of businesses are not just because of that policy, but because of internal uh, reasons within China, for example, ra- you know, raising wages and so on and so forth. And, of course, tariffs from the United States more and more are moving production out of China. So China's actually been doubling down trying to get more investment in from Taiwan. I don't see that as going to change in the next three years. Do you think if Beijing continues to be belligerent, Dimitri, it could deter investment from Taiwan? Uh, Well... I'm not. I'm not sure about. I don't remember exactly the numbers uh, from last year, but it seems like investments on uh, in mainland China from Taiwan businesses actually continued to increase last year. And but on the other hand, uh, the benefits maybe the Taiwanese and the local people, the, the local businesses got from those uh, travelers from mainland China who came to Taiwan, spent some money, went to the restaurants, bought bought a lot of uh, gifts to bring back home. This this has vanished. So we well we understand that well Taiwan is right now in a position where maybe it can. Uh, get some benefits from this uh, the tense cross-race relations or the, the the tense relations between Beijing and Washington. But at one point, in within three years, so the next election, they will also need to answer the question to these local people, uh, people who don't work in those uh, semiconductor big businesses. Uh, what have you done for us? Uh, our, uh, I mean, our incomes have not increases. Businesses, uh, we don't see more much business in some regions of Taiwan, uh, the tourist has vanished, uh, they're gone. So what's next for them? And we'll have to wait there because I'm sure we'll find out in the coming weeks or maybe years or when the coronavirus is finished, Dimitri. Yeah, but when the cover recovers, when the pandemic, the pandemic is over, you will see all countries also uh, putting a lot of big bucks on the table to attract tourists. So Taiwan will not be the only one uh, trying to attract those tourists. So again, Taiwan will have to compete with other uh, tourist destinations in the region like Thailand, Indonesia, and, and, and the likes, and, and Japan. Co- and, and of course China. And China, However, of course. I mean, speaking on the tourism front, the, there have been some businesses that were impacted when, uh, you know, a few years back, uh, China basically pulled the plug on tourism here. Uh, specifically, the tour bus... Uh, companies and a few others specifically, but a lot of the infrastructure that uh, served the Taiwanese tourists was actually Chinese-owned. So there wasn't actually a, uh, as much of an imp- in, as a positive economic impact in Taiwan as one might have expected. And uh, the figures prior to the pandemic showed that uh, through uh, the Southeast Asia and Japan in particular the amount of tourism had actually increased because Taiwan had doubled down on promoting tourism into those regions. And so those actually made more than made up for the loss of Chinese tourism because they tended to spend more on purely Taiwanese-owned businesses. Um, and on top of that, the, the concern, of course, is that if there's a dependence on Chinese tourism, 
there, China has repeatedly in the past, not just with Taiwan, but other countries like, for example, South Korea, Palau, have used this as a political uh, cudgeon uh, or bludgeon to try and get their way. So they're using it as a way to force or coerce action on the part of the receiving uh, of the countries that receive the tourism. So opening yourself up to coercion does have some some uh, serious repercussions. So I'm not suggesting that you know all tourism from China be banned. I think that that would make that would be foolish. But if the Chinese side is going to and as, as they already have pull back their tourists as a political weapon, going out of your way to try and reopen yourself to be attacked again in the same way is not very logical. I think that the administration's done a pretty good job of trying to diversify their sources of, of inbound tourism so they're not so highly dependent on one single market. And moving on, the KMT this week held the second of three forums organised by its National Policy Foundation under the title of Vision of Taiwan in 2030. Participants discussed social issues, including housing, wages and the distribution of wealth. But the actual ideas put forward by the KMT were rather overshadowed by the presence of Taipei Mayor and Taiwan People's Party Chairman Kerwin Zhe, who had been invited to attend the forum despite some opposition, well, from the opposition to such a move. Now, the announcement that Kerr will be attending the forum... Fast led to speculation that his Taiwan People's Party and the KMT could cooperate for the 2022 local elections. And local media was going all bananas over Kerr and KMT chairman Johnny Jung being on the same stage. However, Jung came out and stressed that sharing the stage with Kerr at the forum... Well, it wasn't quite the same as forming an alliance to win the next election. And he said that anyone who's thinking that is simply overthinking the issue. However, KMT Central Standing Committee member Sean Lien, who of course lost to Kerr in an election in Taipei, did caution the party on possibly cooperating with the TPP. And speaking to reporters on the sidelines of the forum, he said that the KMT leadership should carefully evaluate the pros and cons of working with the Taiwan People's Party in the upcoming elections. So Donovan there's going to be no alliance, according to Johnny Jung, and the KMT should be very careful when handling the TPP, according to Sean Lien. Well, I think that's not not what's going on at all. Um, both Ke and Jung downplayed the uh, downplayed any you know that that this was anything other than attending a forum. Uh, the TPP side also pointed out that when they in the past had invited uh, DPP figures to their forums. So that this was not particularly out of the ordinary. Um, and, but it's worth saying that neither Jiang nor Ke, neither of them ruled out a potential future alliance. But there was nothing in this that looked like that was, exa- that was what was going on here. Uh, what I think was going on here is that, and I think that this is actually pretty straightforward on Johnny Chang's part. I think that uh, Johnny Chang or Zhang Jitsun, I think what he was trying to do is he'd already had the first of the series of the forums. And probably it, I didn't see much coverage of it. I didn't see it really any, you know, any coverage of it at all. Um, and I think that what he was thinking is that if he could get uh, Cohen to join this forum, that would, that would hit uh, two birds with one stone. The first being is that it would mean that there would be a lot of press coverage of it and draw a lot of attention to the forum. And number two, it would show that he 
is somebody who thinks out of the box, listens to different voices, uh, is willing to engage in dialogue, and it's not just the insular echo chamber that the KMT is famous for. However, I think he botched it. Um, and I, a lot of what Sean Mann was really upset about is that the organizer of this is the KMT think tank National Policy Foundation. Sean Lien was, is, the, is the deputy or vice chairman of this organization, and he wasn't informed. And there was a bunch of other people in the party who heard all about this talk of a, of a TPP-KMT alliance and freaked out about it. And so there was a lot of talk in the local press about how this was a secret invitation and all these dripping implications of it being sneaky and this person, you know, this DPP, sorry, this, this KMT politician was perturbed and upset and Sean Lien was furious because he wasn't informed. I think really what happened is that uh, Johnny Chang didn't communicate this very well within his own party. I, but I don't think that the motives were to to uh, create a TPP-KMT alliance. I think that may be something they'll discuss farther down the road. Uh, I think his motivations were the two that I laid out right in the beginning, and it was pretty straightforward. Well, I agree. I agree that the decision created some stir within the uh, the opposition party. Uh, the KMT legislator, uh, Jiang Wan An, uh, he came up on social media on Tuesday evening to um, to say that he stands by the decision to invite the Taipei, the Taipei mayor to vision Taiwan, claiming that the party affiliation should be put aside when it comes to make, making decisions that benefit the public. Well, I think he's also made a very interesting point that um, when he said that the purpose of a forum was to bring other voice to the table. If everyone agrees, the forum should not be a forum. So uh, the forum was very successful and the Taipei mayor and uh, the chairman, uh, the KMT chairman, they talk of they talked of very interesting issues like the housing price or social social justice. And when, when we know that the KMT chairman is, is facing some tough competition in the upcoming chairmanship election, I think it's important for him to show that he can, uh, he can uh, bring other voice to the table and maybe openly discuss with uh, competitors. We, we, we do know that... Uh, uh, I mean, he's a he's a major competitor. Of, uh, the, the Taipei mayor will potentially join the the presidential election in a couple of years. So I think it's very important that shows the chairman's leadership and trying to solve real issues. Well, yes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And by the way, yeah, I, I noted down that same quote. Other one of otherwise, if everyone agrees, a forum would not be a forum. That was Johnny Chang. Uh, yeah, that was a good quote. I thought that was a, that that uh, pretty much summed it up. And moving away from politics and talking about, well, water. And the Water Resources Agency on Thursday of this week introduced tougher water restriction measures due to shortages in some parts of the island, meaning industrial water usage in certain areas is now to be cut by up to 11%. Tainan and Jai County have now been placed on an orange alert, which limits total water usage and reduces water supplies, while Zhanghua, Yunlin and Nantou counties, as well as Kaohsiung, have been placed on a yellow alert, meaning users in those areas will see their water pressure lowered. Now, the water 
Water Resources Agency says it's also requiring industrial users in Shinzu, Miaoli and Taichung to reduce water usage by 11%, while industrial users in Jiayi County and Tainan are being asked to cut their usage by 7%. The government has introduced total quantity control measures in science and industrial parks and is also targeting an increase in water, water recycling rather and reuse in those areas. Now, the move was announced last week, but on Tuesday of this week, the Central Weather Bureau warned that Taiwan can expect normal or slightly lower than normal levels of rainfall in the coming two months. And that means water shortages in central and southern parts of the island will likely persist. So, Dimitri, water shortages, of course, residential, us, us mere people aren't really seeing our water pressure suffering that much. But of course, if you happen to have a factory in a science park, you could be a bit worried. Well, th- this is terrible news for the semiconductor ma- for semiconductor manufacturers who are being forced to make cuts of water usage while at the same time desperately trying to scramble and play catch up with the drought on their own. But this is not news. This is something that happens every year. And well, it's terrible news for them, but it's also terrible news for people who live in that area because authorities are now planning to further tighten water use in several cities that are home to a cluster of important manufacturers but also people who live around in these area. So, well, that's that's the question I want to ask is how come we face the same questions time and again and we can't answer these questions? Uh, why can't, why they haven't, I mean... The semiconductor industry does not lack resources. So if it's to come up with plans to, to solve this issue once for all, why does it take so long? And Donovan, I mean... I just posted actually a little bit earlier this morning up on Facebook. I pointed out that TSMC is, uh, has capital uh, outlays and investment basically in R&D of 25 to 28 billion U.S. dollars. Why can't they put a little bit of that into desalination plants? But uh, so, um, yeah, no, those, and you're absolutely right. The, the fundamental question, of course, is why is this happening? And it's, it's a bit of a long topic. I mean, there's desalination. There's, um, there's silting is a big problem. Well, water leakage is a big problem. Um, it, it, there's a lot of reasons. And, of course, the price uh, that is charged for water in Taiwan is incredibly low. Uh, and so those are all issues. Uh, adding, adding to what Dimitri said, which uh, it was spot on, this is a, this is a big issue. Um, and to add also to, uh, Gavin, what you said, is actually that 11% drop uh, is not just Shinju through Taichung. It actually includes northern uh, Zhanghua County, specifically Zhanghua City and Hemei. And that's essentially the industrial heartland. It's not just the semiconductor companies, but it's the actual industrial heartland of the country. So that's concerning for uh, economically on a lot of fronts. Now, the semiconductor companies actually for years have been investing in um, water recycling, wastewater reuse, uh, and they, they've been putting in more and more money, but they keep growing their factories. They keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and so they're sucking up more and more of the water. Now, um, TSMC has been bringing in water trucks as a hedge against this going forward, but it's still a problem for Taiwan because Samsung, for example, and the Korean uh, chip makers are using this as a selling point. They're saying, look, you don't want to put your chip orders with Taiwan because the Taiwanese companies face a water shortage. You're safer sending your orders to us here in South Korea. 
So uh, there's a lot of implications for this for industry in general and, of course, the uh, chip business. But I really do think that the chip business um, should be investing, as Dimitri noted, should be investing more into possibly desalination plants. The technology and the price of it has been coming down quite dramatically uh, in the last few years, and it's starting to look a, lo- a lot more viable. Um, and considering that TSMC, that, that kind of capital outlay, by the way, if they do put in $28 billion, is double Taiwan's regular defense budget. Right, you're right. Trucking water, I mean, for a company like TSMC, the world leader in the semiconductor business, trucking water to sustain your business, I don't think it's not real readership, leadership, and they need to come up with solutions fast. But the trucks, the trucks do use their chips. Um, not. I don't, don't, don't even, <laughs> I'm not sure. Anyway. <laughs> Donkeys, <we have> maybe. <laughs> we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. Now it's the 2 to 8 Memorial Holiday this weekend, and representatives and supporters from over 50 civic organisations marched in Taipei last Sunday, ahead of this Sunday's 74th anniversary of the incident. The march attracted several hundred people, with the number ranging from 200 to 800, depending on what media outlet you happen to be reading or watching. And the theme for this year's march was dismantling authoritarianism and building a new nation. While the rally was held last Sunday, official memorials are taking place this Sunday on February the 28th in both Taipei and Kaohsiung. And it's the one in Taipei that attracted most media attention this week after the Taiwan Nation Alliance announced that it was backing out of helping to organise and attend the event after it was announced that former President Ma Ying-jeou will be participating. Alliance Governor Wu Xu-min said that Ma's presence has met with strong opposition among its members due to his refusal to apologise on behalf of the KMT for the incident after families of 228 victims filed a lawsuit in some 11 years ago demanding that he makes such a statement. Ma, though, dismissed that accusation, saying that he's repeatedly apologised and has done a great deal over the past three decades to help surviving victims' families. However, the Taiwan Nation Alliance shot back to that by saying that Ma's apologies were issued in his capacity as president of the country, not as chairman of the KMT. Now, the Taipei city government says it has no plans to withdraw its invitation to Ma, and the Taipei deputy mayor, Tsai Bing-kun, said that he believes the annual commemorative event is about reconciliation and peace, and it's hoped that all parties involved can learn from history and let go of the hatred and anger of the past on such an important occasion. So, Donovan, of course, it's a very sombre holiday, and of course, Ma did attend this event every year that he was president. So, why do you think this, um, the Taiwan Nation Alliance, suddenly made a big stink of it this year? There's a whole lot of uh, smell of uh, politics going on here. I believe, actually, Ma, as KMT chair, did issue an apology back in, I think it was 2005, 2006, um, soon after Lian Chan left. Um, so that seems a little disingenuous. But there's a lot of back and forth. But there's, the, the, this event is organized by the Taipei city government, with, they originally with two uh, co-organizers. The Taiwan Nation Alliance, and the other one is the 228 Memorial uh, Group. Now, the, the, there's, this is, there's something going on here with the Taiwan Nation Alliance and, between them and the city government. Now, I don't really know who's telling the truth here, to be completely honest. I just don't know. Um, the 
Taipei City government, the main organizer, uh, says that they told the Taiwan Nation Alliance beforehand they were inviting Ma, and they signed off on it. Now, the Taiwan Nation Alliance is saying, oh, no, we weren't informed. Now, I don't know who's telling the truth here, but obviously one of them isn't. Now, just the other day, or it was, I believe, yesterday, uh, Lai Qingde, William Lai, the uh, vice president, he w- had been invited, and he pulled out. Now, he's claiming that the reason he pulled out was a scheduling issue, and it had nothing to do with Ma Ying-jeou. Again, I have no idea if that's true, but here, but here again, between the Taiwan Nation Alliance and the Taipei City Government, the Taipei City Government claims that he pulled out before the Taiwan Nation Alliance left. However, the Taiwan Nation Alliance is saying that that Lai pull, pulled out after they left, implying that he pulled out kind of because of them, because of the issues that they were raising. And of course, going to the issues that they're raising is now Ma Ying-jeou, as you pointed out, up, showed up every year, apologized. I believe their claim that uh, that he didn't apologize as chair is incorrect, although I believe in specific reference to the lawsuit, I believe that they are correct. Um, so I think really the sense that I'm getting here is that the Taiwan Nation Alliance decided that they did not want to be associated with anything to do with Ma Ying-jeou because their membership would be furious with them. Now, again, the order of who was informed when, I don't know who's telling the truth here, but I think that at its core, the Taiwan Nation Alliance uh, membership uh, basically can't stand Ma Ying-jeou for historical reasons, um, and the KMT, and didn't want their leadership to associate them in any way with with him. And, of course, the KMT being the party of uh, that that uh, <clears throat> enacted 228, that, that, you know, the massacre is their fault. And Ma Ying-jeou's father, of course, uh, came over with the KMT, and so he was in the thick of that. And, of course, Ma Ying-jeou, re- especially recently, has been making some very pro-China comments, which, of course, I'm sure the Taiwan Nation Alliance membership uh, were shocked and appalled at. So I suspect that this was internal pressure within the Taiwan Nation Alliance uh, caused them to pull out. And of course, Dimitri, President Tsai Ing-wen will be presiding over a 2 to 8 memorial event in Kaohsiung and not attending the Taipei one. I mean, do you think maybe maybe she should have attended the Taipei one? Well, yes and no. I mean, as you mentioned, this is not also not a new issue. And uh, every year we hear people complaining about Mainzio attending these events. But uh, it's this, the logic is the same as with a forum. If we only have... The, People who agree, who I mean, sit together and talk. What is the point in this in holding these events? As a former president, the former head of the KMT, it's very important for uh, someone like Mindjo to attend these event to to attend these event to show that um, across. I mean, the, from the KMT to the to the DPP, people really care about these issues. Uh, well, yes, that's very that's a very important event. But of course, it's a very somber day, Dimitri, and going in a completely different direction here. I mean, it's it's a long weekend holiday, so of course, when it, when it comes to what are you doing, where are you going to play on two to eight weekend holiday? I mean, do you think maybe there needs also be some education about the incident, so people just don't use it as another holiday? Do you think that could that could probably help? 
calm down the situation when it comes to who's going to attend the events and why they're attending the events? Well, yes and no. Uh, this is a, a holiday and then most people actually over the next three days won't actually talk much about this issue. So, well, if you see any reports on television, if you see uh, any people, uh, well, we hope actually this event could maybe create this kind of momentum for uh, more discussions on this issue. So if we see, again, more confrontation, I don't see the point in holding these events. Donovan. Um, I can add a little bit on the, the Kaohsiung, uh, on uh, Taiwan uh, having the event down in Kaohsiung. Now, uh, I, I looked around and tried to find, uh, you know, I was poking around local media trying to find much on this, and there wasn't really a whole lot. It was mostly just descriptive. Um, but the, the Chen Shi Mai, he had the Kaohsiung mayor, he made references to this is about smoothing out history, and essentially what he was trying to point out was that this is always held in Taipei, and 228 was a national thing, and Kaohsiung was particularly hard hit. And so this is an important symbolic move, you know, bringing the president down to Kaohsiung to help heal more of the nation than just uh, having this in Taipei. And I think that's true as far as it goes. Um, however, I do think that there's another major factor here. And that is that, that on the stage is going to be um, President Tsai, Chen Chi Mai, and Su Zhenchang. And I think that bringing down the president and Premier Su, I think this is intended to shore up Chen Chi Mai. He's been polling terribly in all the recent polls. Now, there's a TVBS poll that just came out ranking local leaders. Now, I'm a little iffy on TVBS polls, but other polls confirm his low popularity. He came in last in that poll in rankings of all the local leaders, meaning the mayors and county commissioners throughout Taiwan. He came in dead last. Uh, other polls have shown that his popularity rating is quite low. So I, I also think that a part of this, not just the regional justice part of it, uh, which I do think genuinely is part of it, I do think that part of this is about uh, shoring up and trying to uh, give some support and shore up uh, Chen Chi Mai's political position. Anyway, moving on once again, and Taiwan's indigenous languages were in focus at the beginning of the week as President Tsai Ing-wen attended a conference on Saturday in observance of the UNESCO International Mother Language Day, which fell on Sunday. And speaking at the conference, Tsai said she believes indigenous languages represent a valuable voice of the country and she lauded indigenous languages as gaining the status of national languages in 2017. She also went on to say that some government agencies are now publishing official documentation in indigenous languages and providing Indigenous language simultaneous interpretation on a trial basis. She also said that there are now teachers in schools who are specialised in Indigenous languages to teach, well, the students. Now, but of course the question is, how do you teach Indigenous languages if Taiwan wants to make them sort of more international? Now, there stood up Tainan City Councillor Li Chi Wei, who also used International Mother Language Day to stress the need to make, well, Taiwan's dialects and languages more internationally recognisable. And he suggested using the romanization system to basically spell the languages out instead of, of course, the Juin Fu Hao system used in Taiwan because he said that makes it difficult to basically promote interest in these languages and stymies people from outside of Taiwan being able to learn them. So, of course, Dimitri, there's a big barahoo about Mandarin and romanization, but, of course, if the government wants to make Taiwan's indigenous languages more internationally acceptable and understandable, should it be using romanization to do so? Well, well, 
That's a good point because uh, when it comes to promote languages and indigenous languages, the key is how do you uh, how do you teach those languages? But when it comes to the uh, romanization system, uh, they need to find common grounds between the different languages. Uh, as you say, for example, if you take the, the language Chinese, uh, the, they have a different way of spelling uh, Chinese terms in Taiwan, in China, in Singapore, and Hong Kong. So when it comes to international to, to local languages like indi- the, the indigenous the language of the indigenous people it's maybe uh, looking to a system that would make it consistent with other systems maybe uh, in Australia or in the Asia Pacific region so that scholars can exchange uh, they can learn more about uh, the connections between languages in the region so yes we need to promote Uh, the learning of indigenous languages with the proper system, but with an eye on maybe to promote those languages outside of Taiwan. And of course, a proper system, Donovan, they still haven't got a proper system for road signs. (laughs) A good point. Um, Yeah, honestly, my my take on this, as far as the romanization is concerned, um, I think that whatever system helps the you know the the people who are born into these uh, indigenous groups that whatever is the easiest way for them to learn to con- to speak it and to carry on the language i think that should be the number one priority not wor- worrying about the international market the number of people who are going to want to say learn truku outside of taiwan is going to be a very tiny number of linguists really i it's not going to be uh, a commonly picked up language. And, and if they are the kind of person who's a linguist, they'll adopt whatever system is used in Taiwan regardless. So I think that that's a secondary issue. Now, there may be a very good uh, argument for romanization, maybe the easiest and best way to, uh, to, to read and write these languages, but I'm not an expert there, so I'm not going to go into that. Um, but I think really centrally here, the biggest problem of all of this is that, you know, I, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, the things that, uh, as, as you, you went through a list of some of the things that they're doing, I have two fundamental problems here. Uh, as the Thai administration, I think they're doing what they can. Uh, they've increased uh, funding on indigenous and, you know, protection, as they put it, protection and promotion of indigenous languages has increased fivefold over the last few years. That's excellent. They've got a a lot of different programs and all of this. My concern is that it's too late with some of these languages. The, you know, Amis perhaps, uh, there's enough speakers that they may be able to rebuild some momentum there. But for example, Tao, there's 500 or so of them left. I don't know how much effect this is going to have. It's worth trying, but I don't really know that it's going to work. Um, so I'm glad they're trying. Uh, I wish they'd done this 30 years ago. Um, it, it's 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 such a late date to be trying to do this. Now the other the other other problem is is that as far as I can tell, this is entirely devoted toward the uh, government recognized indigenous tribes, where there are other groups, for example, the Soraya around Tainan, who uh, the so-called Plains Aborigines. Uh, and, you know, for example, the Soraya have been working hard to try and revive their language, and I believe that that is not included in this program. But they're actually trying to do it uh, on their own and working hard at it. 
So it would be nice to see some support for them and some of the others, and they're not alone, uh, around Taiwan as well. And before we go this week, the Ministry of Labour announced that this year's equal pay day was set on February the 20th, one day earlier than last year, based on estimates that women here in Taiwan needed to work that far into this year to earn the same amount that men did last year. Equal pay day is based on the estimate that women had to work 51 more days on average than men to earn the same income because their salaries were 14% lower on average than those of male workers in 2020. Now, according to the Labour Ministry, the average hourly salary for female employees in 2020 was 296 NT compared with 344 NT for men and the ministry says that over the past decade the average hourly wage gap in Taiwan has been reduced from 17.1% in 2010 to 14% last year and that translates into a fall from 63 to 51 extra work days for women to achieve the same pay level as men and the Labour Ministry says despite the gap Taiwan still fares better on gender pay equality than other countries in the region and worldwide. So, Dimitri, there you go. Fair, equal pay for women. But, of course, that doesn't really sound very good, does it? I mean, it's gone down from 17.1% to 14% in 10 years. Well, the gap is narrowing, we could say that, but it might take another few years, uh, many years maybe, before we reach uh, serious improvements. We see serious improvement in the situation. So, yes, uh, the, the issue is still there, uh, but is, uh, is the government doing enough on this? Uh, well... Uh, it, it's this not only an issue in Taiwan. It's an issue uh, in many countries around the world. But it it all comes to uh, uh, one basic principle: is that in any businesses you're not supposed, and most companies actually don't want you to share any information about what is ex- what is your exactly what is your salary. And you usually don't ask these questions to colleagues. So uh, some countries actually later on, uh, they have come up with new policies and ask and openly share data on the income of their staff. And even in some, com- in some big corporations, you can actually uh, raise the issue to the HR manager asking, what is that person's salary? Uh, it seems like we're doing the same job. And well, it's maybe this person has a different in- uh, salary. So, well, uh, is Taiwan ready for more openness and uh, businesses, but also maybe uh, most staff workers, are we ready to share such information with colleagues? And do we want uh, companies to share such information with actually uh, government agencies? So Donovan there, Dimitri, basically saying, you know, unless companies tell people what everybody earns, nothing's going to change. Uh, well, I, I, I think that it, it might help. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that's a bad idea. Um, I think the issue is a bit more complicated than that. Um, but I think in cases, I think that what that would do is it would help remove cases where there is a specifically a sexism on the part of the boss. Um, and I think that would go a long way toward uh, removing the gap. Um, but there, it's not the only factor. Um, sometimes it's not the employers so much as it's the culture at large, for example. Um, women are much more likely to take time off to care for the children. That's more of a societal problem. Um, that's, and because in there, of course, allowing men to take off more time to help with the children, um, you know, that, to a certain degree, you can do that right after the, you know, the, the child is born. 
But long term, that's a cultural shift that needs to happen, um, where both parents are more involved in the raising of children rather than the mother taking, you know, uh, stopping working for a certain number of years and then getting behind in her career. Um, uh, another, uh, you know, another example is uh, that's a societal one overseas. And again, I haven't seen any studies done on this here, though they may they may have been done. Is uh, overseas at least women are less likely to ask for a raise, uh, and there the transparency again would help. Uh, so I think Dimitri's suggestion there would be helpful there as well. Another one overseas is that women are often like more likely to say that they prefer a work life balance over career. Uh, and again, that's a cultural issue, but I don't, again, I, I haven't seen any studies to see whether that's actually true here. Um, but at the end of the day, this, this gap is just not acceptable because, because what's happened in, in, or what happens in Thai, it's not just Taiwan, this is kind of happening worldwide, is that not only are women going into work and being paid less, they often go home and have a higher burden in terms of childcare and housework. And combining these two things is it's a it's a kind of a, a slightly toxic combination, and it's really not helpful, I think, to the society at large uh, to move forward and to be able to have everybody within the society be able to fulfill their lives better. Too much uh, burden is being put on the women, and they're not receiving enough for it. Because, of course, Dimitri, we do have a female president who I take it must earn the same amount of wages that basically the last male presidents had. So do you think maybe the government should be taking steps to speed up the gender pay gap disparity? Well, we do hope that uh, we could see improvements much faster. But even if the president maybe wants to move forward, it's likely that some businesses and some more conservative members of the ruling party might not be so keen in moving that fast. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, as, as Dimitri noted, uh, for example, the transparency there would be a step forward. Not all of this stuff can be legislated. Um, you know, adding paternity leave uh, would help. Uh, but some stuff comes down to education and cultural change. So maybe half of it could be removed by, I'm just throwing out a figure I just don't know, to be honest with you. But, the, you know, the transparency, paternity leave, I think those, you know, those steps would, would be a big step forward. It would certainly knock off several percentage points off that 14%. I don't know how much, maybe five, maybe eight. Um, I don't think it would completely eliminate it, but it would be a big step forward. And that's where we'll have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Dimitri Buyas. Well, it was great to be here again. Thank you. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith in Taichung. It's great to be back. Now, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.